Hey, welcome to Talking in Tongues. I'm Jared Reddy, and I'm with my co-host, Bethany Miller. We've got a great episode for you today on Black History Month. And we're so excited to share this episode with you today. Uh, we've got a couple of fantastic guests with us, the first of whom is actually my father-in-law, Dr. John Miller. Uh, Dr. John is the pastor of education at Living Word Temple of Restoration, which is a multi-ethnic independent church in the city of Rochester. Dr. John holds a PhD in Renewal Studies from Regent University and teaches for Regent University as well as ministering at Northeastern Seminary. Yeah, and our other guest is Pastor Bill Gibbons, who's ordained at the Genesis Conference of the Free Methodist Church. He's an associate pastor of community engagement at New Hope Free Methodist Church. Uh, he's a retired New York State trooper. Uh, he holds an MA in Theology and Transformational Leadership from Northeastern Seminary. And Bill and his wife, Nicole, are the parents of eight adult children and 18 grandchildren. Well, I know I so enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure you will too. This month, we are talking about Black History Month. As I was growing up, this isn't something that I interacted with at all. Um, it really wasn't something that was mentioned either in the schools that I grew up in or in the churches that I went to. So this is something that uh, has been more of a recent thing for me to even contemplate or talk about with people. Um, Dr. John, I'm gonna throw the first question over to you. Can you give us a little bit of a brief overview? What is Black History Month? Why is it significant? Okay, sure. Um, so it's actually quite a bit older than you might think. Uh, 1915 is when the idea was first uh, being floated out there by Carter Woodson. And just feeling like there was a, just a, a lack of any kind of emphasis on history from a Black perspective or highlighting people of color uh, all through American history. Um, February was selected as the time to do it because it kind of coincides with Lincoln's birthday as well as Frederick Douglass's birthday. So those were kind of two of the, the things that kind of brought it into February. When it first started, it was a week long and it wasn't until 1976 under the presidency of uh, Gerald Ford that it was turned into a month of focus. So that's kind of the, the evolving of it. There's an official website, a government uh, website on Black History Month. And so you could go there and find out all of the themes that are going on and, and the emphasis that are there, places that you can uh, get more education on uh, from a, a secular point of view. This year, the theme is on uh, Black health and wellness, really historically focusing on the contributions of African-American doctors, nurses, doulas, midwives, all of those different ones who have contributed uh, uh, in that sort of a health field, as well as some of the disparities that are there in the in the healthcare uh, industry. So that's kind of the emphasis and the purpose uh, behind it is just to highlight uh, Black history that hasn't really been told. Yeah, thanks so much, Dr. John. Pastor Bill, um, I want to ask you, is Black History Month something you've always celebrated or engaged with at home or in your church, what does that look like in your life? For me, that's an interesting question because no, it wasn't something that I've um, engaged with all my life. I grew up in uh, a community that was predominantly white. So there was very, very little taught in schools in regards to Black history other than Martin Luther King and maybe Frederick Douglass and, that, and Harriet Tubman, that was it. So um, 
I was more influenced by what we call American history, which really didn't include people of color. It wasn't until I was an adult that I really started to recognize uh, the richness of the, you know, historically black people and my heritage. So in a sense, there's a little bit of bitterness, um, but um, it's a whole new world now for me. Uh, I'm 57 years old and I'm just beginning to um, discover so much of my history. To that point of um, needing to look back and say, you know, this isn't something that I engaged with very early on and kind of that uh, regret that comes in in realizing that I recently had someone ask me, you know, who are your favorite theologians? Who are the people that have really shaped your thought of scripture and, and who God is? And, you know, you start making this list in your head. And the follow-up question that they asked me after that was how many of them are people of color? And it, I mean, I, I just was shocking to me as I went through my list, how many people had a skin tone that was basically like mine and, and recognizing how one-sided that perspective was. And I could argue and I could say, you know, well, that's totally unintentional. And those are the theologians. And, you know, I could, I could kind of back myself into that corner and say, well, I didn't mean to do that. Um, but I'm learning that I have to be really intentional about it. And I can be really intentional and it's important to be. So as a follow-up question to that, um, who are some of your favorite theologians, Christian leaders, people who've been influential in your life who are people of color? Who would you pull out to highlight in this month? Dr. John, I'm going to throw that to you first. <laughs> I always start off by telling people, you know, I have a German heritage and most of the heresy that has come to the church has come through Germans. So I just uh, put that out there in, in the first place. So I have a stack of books beside me, and, and so I'll hold this one up here. This is um, Thurman, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, a hugely important uh, work. And one of the things that we know about how Jesus came in the first place was not to the upper crust, was not to the elite, but for the down and outers. And uh, so there's a, there's a powerful perspective that, that, that he would bring to the discussion. Um, the other book that I only read just a couple years ago, A Black Theology by James Cone. Now, coming up in my early uh, Christian education, I was taught that this is, not, this is not a good guy. Can you believe that? And I, when I read it, I was stunned. It's like suddenly the 1960s and 70s made sense to me that some of the stuff that he's writing is like, oh, that was what was going on when I was a child and you kind of kept picking up the vibes along the way. And so that, that has really enlarged my understanding in, in uh, recent years. So that's like, it kind of caused some of the pieces to fall into place. How much time can I take here? I got a stack. <laughs> take your Go time. It. I see it. <laughs> <laughs> Leonard Lovett, Kingdom Beyond Color. Uh, a powerful uh, African-American author and begins to uh, uh, unpack things. Stony the Road We Trod, Cain uh, Hope Felder, uh, good sort of stuff. From a historical point, especially in the, in the Rochester community, this, this has been uh, very interesting. I'm, I'm a historian. I love to get into this sort of stuff. The African-American church 
uh, community in Rochester, New York. So this is like, this is us uh, uh, right near and close by. African Christianity by uh, Agbu Kalu. I always have to look at that carefully to get the, the syllables right. He died just a, a year or two ago, but just really starts to talk about, you know, this is not a Eurocentric religion, but this is a Afrocentric religion. So some of those sorts of things um, have been uh, huge in my enlarging, stretching out the boundaries of what, what church is and how should I be interpreting the text. So good stuff. That's that's fantastic. I should have known you could you would have come with a bunch of references. That's that's so great. I had to um, I had to curtail myself. That's enough. Done. Stop. <laughs> um, Pastor Bill, how about you? Who would be some uh, some influential voices in your life? Well, I like the book by Cohn and, and Leonard Lovett. Me, I think I take more of a contemporary approach. I like some of the voices that are out there right now. Um, for example, Dominique uh, Du Bois Gilliard. He he um, because he talks more about some of the issues that we're dealing with, like mass incarceration and and things like that. I like Natasha Morrison. She uh, has a book that she came out with a couple a few years ago, The Bridge, speaking about racial reconciliation. Um, Austin Channing Brown, um, and and for me, I I think I always fall back to the writings of Dr. Martin Luther King um, because I think he wrote so far ahead of his time that it's amazing. You would think that uh, that he was writing today about today, and I think it would do us. Uh, a great benefit to go into anything written by him. For example, uh, uh, where do we go from here? Community or case to me is when I read that book, I was blown away by how relevant it was. And he wrote it in the sixties. Um, jumping back to some of the more contemporary writers, uh, I think I'm more into black voices than African-American theologians, especially when they are Christian Black voices like Brian Stevenson, Just Mercy. Um, the title in itself gives you an idea that he's, he's writing about true events and experiences, but I truly believe it's from a Christian perspective. So there's a lot of voices out there. Um, Brenda Salter McNeil, uh, Becoming Brave, speaking about racial reconciliation and racial justice, things like that. Those are the types of books that really move me because they're in our current time. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. And just kind of a follow-up question. When it comes to your role in your church, your passion, your focus, your ministry, really, I know that being a multicultural church and really the core is one of the core values of, of community there. Uh, just to kind of uh, lob a few of these at you, um, why is this important to you? What are some of the challenges that you face in cultivating that sort of multicultural or multi-ethnic church? And, and what has helped your community succeed in that vision? I don't think we're ever 
will ever be able to use the language of having succeeded until um, until Jesus comes. Because if we're talking about multiculturalism or multi being multi ethnic, it's all developmental, and I think we've made a mistake when we take the attitude that we've arrived or we've done it. Um, I think it's Ibram Kendi. He wrote a book on um, how to be an anti-racist, and I th- he he states it about racism and reconciliation. He says is we have to take the approach that there's so much to do and start doing it. And it's, it's never going to end. I mean, just like where Jesus once said, the poor you will have with you always. Racism we're going to have with us always. Um, societies that do not practice inclusiveness, we're always going to have those things. So no matter how well we think we're doing it, it's always going to be in the developmental stages. You asked me about challenges. One of the biggest challenges, uh, whether it's in a church or an organization that has been practicing racial diversity or inclusion or, or any of those terms for any period of time, if you're, if you're an African-American, there's always a challenge to have your voice heard. Um, even though we're trying to work on being a multicultural, multi-ethnic congregation at New Hope, a lot of times things are initiated from the majority race perspective. And there's always a fight to really say, well, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Let's look at it from this perspective. Um, and I guess it's a, a, another way of, a, a more concise way of saying it would be where voices of color aren't secondary voices. A little, little background. Um, this is my 17th year in this congregation, and it's about 80% Black, 20% White. The joke is that it was a, it was a Black church until I showed up, so... And I messed it up. Um, uh, for the month of February, we we put a pretty strong emphasis on uh, highlighting different contributions that different African Americans have made, and we will do a um, what we call candid conversations. It's a Saturday, all day Saturday event where we'll gather and we'll we'll have maybe a live discussion on a particular book, particular topic, and and so we'll go along those ways. It's been not just churchy people that have come, but secular people that had come, and it has created some interesting moments. You know, when some of your guests uh, use a few cuss words that that we're not accustomed to here in church, but uh, hey, it keeps it uh, lively that way. So we've been <laughs> scandalized a few times in a, in a fun sort of a way. Um, one of the things that we did wrestle with uh, in our earliest attempts to to be multi ethnic is uh just can't do everything at once on any given sunday and you know music is a classic example of what that looks like but as a leadership team we've really settled into we're going to be a an afrocentric multi-ethnic church 
So the default mode will be in the, the African motif, if you will, African-American motif, um, predominant preaching style is in that. The music choice is predominantly in that as well. So you won't hear much Hillsong at our church. So sorry, uh, but it is what it is. Anyways, um, so we, we try to, to, to give a default there because there's so much that needs to be done along those lines. And, and so, you know, I rejoice to be a part of that congregation and have come to, to love uh, all that that encompasses because I find it so enriching that I can get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So we, we do another thing with our, our children as well. And our, uh, I'm over, oversee the, the children's ministry and stuff like that. Um, we've gotten so we just read storybooks that are from a, a highlighting an African-American hero um, or she-ro uh, to highlight some of those things that are, like Bill mentioned there, you know, it's more than just the pilgrims in 1620. And, you know, the story is bigger than that and, and we need to, to expand it. And so I am every year buying several kids books which I think are the best because it takes complex ideas and gets them down to little short paragraphs at the bottom. And I like pictures too. So, you know, in my massive theological library, my kids book section is getting better and better and better. Plus I like to share them with my grandkids. It's even better. That's so good. Pastor Bill, do you mind sharing a, a little bit of some of your thoughts in regard to how churches can be more intentional about creating that multi-ethnic space? I know Sunday mornings are often one of the most segregated times uh, throughout history, and it still remains that case. What are some of those things that come to your mind or on your heart that can help cultivate a, a space like that? It'd be helpful if we didn't cling so much to our traditions. Um, and I say that cautiously, because we do need traditions. You know, our... our um, so much of our faith is rooted in traditions. But when we, I think when we broke off into different denominationalisms, uh, denominational way of thinking, those denominations are so rooted in, in our, um, our traditions that now when we're moving forward and we wanna cultivate a multicultural environment, sometimes those traditions, which include style of music, style of worship. They are rooted in white societies. So when we say that we want to have a multicultural uh, congregation where everybody has a voice and everybody is embraced, sometimes we have to let some things go. Um, and it doesn't have to be on a permanent basis, but at least to allow some of the other traditions that we haven't embraced to, get, to become a part of a collective new tradition. And it is so hard to do that. And um, we've all heard the, the, we laugh about coming to a new church, you're the new pastor, but God forbid you try to move that piano. Well, sometimes those traditions even if they are not visible, are like that old piano. Um, I'm going to kind of 
take things a little bit of a different direction. We've been talking about churches. Um, Dr. John, you mentioned that this month has been, um, you know, kind of talking about uh, health. That's the focus for this Black History Month. Interesting, the there was an article just recently, just a couple of days ago, talking about maternal health um, and in Rochester and the disparity between if you're a Black mother versus a white mother. And the statistics were just staggering. Um, and I found the article buried underneath, you know, a bunch of other things like way at the bottom and this tiny little headline and you click on it. And it's like, oh, my goodness, this is like shocking. Why are we not talking about these things? And, you know, it's it's that same priority of news cycle, you know, what hits the top and what becomes the, the, the topic of the day um, and things like that get buried. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned, you wrote an article for us this month. And one of the things that you talk about in your article is is the difference between being not racist and being anti-racist. And I think most people would say, well, I'm not racist. You know, like obviously we want to describe ourselves in that way. But for you, you've, you've made a distinction between those two things. Can you explain a little bit more about that and what you mean? Yeah. So if we look at, first of all, just the word racist and, and your response there is, is pretty, uh, pretty uh, typical. Because when oftentimes when people think of a racist, they're thinking they got the KKK hood on and, you know, they're burning a cross and, uh, uh, you know, they're they're throwing rocks or doing all sorts of nasty sort of things. That's that's a racist. Well, certainly that is. And I've never done any of those things. I don't support those things. So how could I ever be considered to be racist? So we have to kind of back up from that uh, knee jerk sort of reaction and to know that in the context of racism, it's uh, it's knowing, okay, as a white person, I have certain privileges uh, that a person of color that does not have. And I'm I'm less likely to get pulled over by a police officer than than someone who is uh, uh, of color. Um, so so there's all of those disparities uh, everywhere that we look. So when it comes to the idea of being um, uh, anti-racist, it means that I have to do something that's going to be very intentional to, to, to uh, push back against that. It, it almost, in some ways, I, I feel like I'm, the, I'm the, the, the mother bear that has to go after things when, when I see that, that there is a wrong being done. They can be stupid things that people say. Uh, I think about extended family gatherings. You might have some uncle that's going to say some boneheaded thing and it's like you can either be passive and not engage that at all or to be an anti-racist means i have to confront that i have to actually speak out in that and uh, uh go after it uh to be a, an anti-racist means that i am taking those intentional sort of steps every day in that uh you know when you look at your your calendar you think back over the the, the 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 weeks and the months of who do you socialize with and if they're all people of your same ethnicity uh, maybe you need to step up your game there and to to do something that's going to be more more actively trying to break down those barriers of racism i need to be doing something every day that's going to be and it doesn't matter if uh, if it means oh my neighbor across the street his his car got uh, hung up in the snow. I'm going to go out and I'm going to help him get his car out of the ditch. Uh, or um, tomorrow morning, I've got an appointment here with a, with a Buddhist in this office right here. We're going to be talking about some stuff here. You know, so, so here's this Asian guy. 
is going to be, we're going to be face to face, knee to knee in, in talking about uh, uh, some of the things of life. You know, what do you do? What does your calendar look like? And you start to do that inventory back over the, the, the weeks and the months. Has there been a real diversity of people that I'm interacting with? I tell people that, you know, I'm old man. I've been planning my funeral for a few years here. And, and uh, one of my uh, goals is that at my funeral, that there will be a, a even diversity of people that would be coming to there. And that means that, well, obviously my family's mostly white. And so that means that my friends who care enough about me to come to my funeral are going to be people of color. And I had to live my life in such a way, investing in that, that they, they would want to come. So what do I do every day to invest myself into a, a people group that's not like me? I think that that's part of what it means to be anti-racist. Yes, there's those confrontations that need to be made, but there is that investing day by day by day in the lives of people and just loving on them. In some ways, it's, it's like super simple. It's like actually be a Christian and walk in humility and embrace people and come alongside and just, you know, the words of encouragement every day. So, you know, that's, that's the, oh, that's part of being anti-racist. Yes. There's so much that I think about breaking down walls. It's, it's coming out of authentic relationship with people. So gotta love them. Gotta love them. Uh, Pastor Bill, as we start to wind down our discussion, is there anything else that's on your heart you'd like to share? I'd like to piggyback on what um, John just said. And that flowed from what Bethany said about being intentional. If we're really going to be serious about racism, we have to be intentional about being anti-racist. I have a, a neighbor who is, uh, he, he's Jewish. And um, we've met by mistake, we've been neighbors for the past four years. And one of the first things he told me was that he would never become a Christian. And um, he would ask me questions about my faith and I would give him answers. And he thought I was trying to convert him. And I told him, no, I'm not trying to convert you. I'm just trying to be a good neighbor. And his health isn't too good. So um, I'll go down and mow his lawn. I'll uh, grocery shop for him so that he doesn't have to go into the store, particularly during the time of um, COVID pandemic and everything. And um, we just became friends. Well, we... In our neighborhood, we have other neighbors who are Asian. And he, uh, he fought in the Vietnam War. And he has some particular feelings about people from the Koreas. And he made a comment, and we sort of got in an argument because I called him out on it. But through this dialogue, we began to talk more about the teachings of Jesus. Why am I telling you this? I'm a black guy, he's a Jewish guy, and we live among other ethnic, other cultures in our neighborhood. And we've had to reconcile that we have a chance to demonstrate our friendship and our relationship to everybody around us. 
and people are seeing it. Well, a couple of weeks ago, he calls me up and he said, um, I can't sleep at night, it's your fault. And I says, well, why can't you sleep? And he says, I can't stop thinking about Jesus. He calls me up last week, just last week, to tell me that his cousin was sick and that she was being put on a respirator. And so I decided to pray right there on the spot. And as I'm praying, I'm trying to be careful not to offend him out of respect for his, um, his, his religion and his faith. And so I'm getting to the end of the prayer and I would normally say in Jesus name. Instead, I said, so Lord, with this, we say amen and amen. And then he responds in Jesus name. And my mouth hit the floor. And he says, Bill, I think the Lord has spoken to me. He says, I don't know if I believe in Jesus Christ 100%. I think God is telling me that it's my choice to take what faith I have and believe or not believe in Jesus Christ. And he said, Bill, I'm a Christian. And then he said, I have something to ask of you. Will you baptize me? And my whole point in all of that is when we make a decision to be anti-racist and then demonstrate it in love through relationships, we begin to show everybody around us that this Christian faith and this Christian walk can tear down walls, it can meld cultures and people together in a spirit of love and unity. And I'm witnessing it right here in my own neighborhood. And the interesting thing is, this isn't something that happened in a church. It happened from one porch to the next. Hey, well, thanks so much for checking out this episode. I hope you gleaned something from it. I know I did. Take a minute and check out talkingintongues.org for more info on this subject and what's to come in future months.